This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey and I'm joined by Katie Bulls and James Forsyth. Boris Johnson is heading to Saudi Arabia and the UAE tonight, asking them to pump more oil to ease pressure on European or global supply. James, we know what Boris Johnson wants. What's he going to offer them in return? So I think there are two things that the arguments that you can make for the Saudi Arabians about the current situation. One is, you know, ultimately Saudi Arabia wants to revive its relationship with Washington, which is in clearly in, a, in the worst state it has been in some time. This offers them an opportunity to do so. The second argument, I think, is one of the things that the Saudis are very worried about, and one of the reasons they're not inclined to help the West out in this current situation so far, is that they feel that too much has been offered to Iran in the nuclear talks in Vienna. But I think if the oil price remains very high, there is going to become pressure to basically do a deal at almost any cost with the Iranians in Vienna to get the sanctions off Iranian oil, which would then reduce the price. So I think that, you know, that should be the kind of... The, the two reasons for the Saudis wanting to do this is, one, this offers them a chance to restore their status as Washington's kind of indispensable interlocutor on the oil market, on energy markets. And then secondly, you know, if you don't, the danger is that, from a Saudi point of view is that your regional rival Iran could end up being strengthened because it could be able to negotiate considerably more favourable terms than even the ones currently being discussed in Vienna because everyone is just desperate to get that Iranian oil back into the market. Katie, Saudi Arabia has said for its part through OPEC that it doesn't want to get involved in political matters. And the Times reported today that the government isn't feeling particularly optimistic that this is going to solve the immediate problem. What is the mood? Is there any sense this is going to make a real difference anytime soon? I think it's more hope that they can come to some kind of agreement because if you don't have this and if you have to deal with the current price of oil and that being potentially medium long term, that means lots of tricky decisions for number 10 in the Treasury. So I think that were the Saudis to turn around and say, oh, you know, we, we are going to do this, we're going to pump more, it suddenly means that the UK still has a cost of living crisis, but the level of that is going to be less severe. And it means that decisions Rishi Sunak has to make, partly in terms of the spring statement, but I would say probably more if you look, for example, to October, which is where you'd expect the energy price cap to go up again even further. It makes some of those decisions around it a little bit less bad. In terms of what the government's looking at, though, I think even if the Saudis agree to do this, I think that if you look, for example, at fracking, if you look at the conversation of North Sea oil, All these things take time. I think the Saudi option is the option which would be the quickest. It would provide the most immediate relief. But whatever happens, there is a cost of living crisis. And the Treasury and others are going to come to pressure to do things to soothe that. I think, though, as Kate Andrews has written on Coffee House and in the magazine, there are limits really to how much you can actually shield the public from that. James, Katie mentioned there the spring statement and then again in October, points where the government can bring in measures. What's on the table to ease the cost of living crisis? So look, I think what you're going to see lots of people saying is on the spring statement, people say, ah, you know, 
what about this national insurance rise? Why are you putting people's taxes up in, in April at this time and households have been squeezed? I think there's very little chance of the government backing away from that. I think they regard this as a as a sign of their kind of fiscal credibility, given that it's a long, new, long-term commitment. They feel they need a, a, a funding stream for it. You're also going to see lots of people saying, you know, you've got to do more to help people with their energy bills. I think that the Treasury view is, yes, that might, that is almost certainly the case, but we know what the price rise is going to be in April, and they've already announced £9 billion of support for that. And they're going to wait to see where the price cap is in October because it is moving around a huge amount. At the moment, the kind of consensus view is the price cap would go up to £3,000, which is a lot of money. And I think given the squeeze that would put on household spending, that makes it highly likely there would be a recession. But, you know, there were points last week when the the price of energy in the futures market was suggesting that the price cap could go kind of £4,000, £4,500. So I think you've got to know what the scale of the problem is before working out, you know, what measures you're going to take to try and deal with it. But I think it is, I I think this spring statement slightly reminds me of Rishi Sunak's first budget, when he announced a whole series of kind of money to try and deal with the consequences of COVID. And then COVID turned out to be much bigger than that package, you know, basically, you know, and I think this is, there is a kind of question right now, which is, you know, how much can this spring statement kind of accurately gauge what the cost of living pressures are going to be because you know we don't know you know if one was being an optimist one could think that you know that this russia could sue for, could sue for peace and you could be back to a kind of more normal economic situation in the energy markets fairly rapidly or a pessimist could think that this is going to go on we're going to see a kind of protracted length of time as someone pointed out to me the other day the iran iraq war went on for eight years and you know we're long lasting pressures on energy and food prices because of what that would mean, so I think it, I think it is hard to have an idea of quite how how severe this cost of living crisis is going to be. We know there is going to be one. I don't think we at the moment know, as, as Katie was saying, you know, either how severe it's going to be or how long lasting it's going to be. Katie, to Brexit yesterday, the government presented some amendments to customs arrangements that were going to change references in it from the United Kingdom to Great Britain. Unionists in Northern Ireland weren't particularly happy about this. Can you explain what that was all about? Yes, this was a plan by the government, as you say, change Brexit custom regulations to replace UK with Great Britain, which therefore means excluding Northern Ireland from the customs rules. And I think it went by... I think it took MPs by surprise last night. It was Sam Coates and Sky who started reporting, you know, discontent. And it was actually Brexiteers and the Tory party, figures like Steve Baker, sounding alarm. And it resulted in the government pulling it. You now have the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, saying that she's going to get to the bottom of how this ever came to came to happen. It comes after some of these Brexiteers were actually blaming her last night and saying... They thought this was Liz Truss, you know, watering down the provisions, watering down the situation. And I think that it's important to see this in a wider context, which is the reason there was so much alarm last night is because there is a wider conversation at the moment about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, we have heard from Boris Johnson in the past that he is willing to trigger Article 16 if he needs to, if these negotiations don't really go anywhere. I think that since Liz Trust took over from David Frost, there hasn't been much of a change in terms of substance in, that ne- in those negotiations. You speak to people on both sides and they say, oh, the atmosphere is, you know, lighter, people are a bit more friendly. I think there's some Brussels 
obviously prefer dealing with Liz Truss, but actually in terms of progress, it hasn't really gone backwards or forwards. You know, there's been lots of, you know, taking time out to think about what each other want, but not really moving. And I think there was a point actually before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where you could actually hear Boris Johnson dialing up the rhetoric a bit more on activating and triggering Article 16. Something Tory Brexiteers want, the DUP also. But I think when Boris Johnson was looking at keeping his MPs on side, also in the right was saying one of the things that they wanted to see in, in the aftermath party game was a tougher line on Brexit and specifically on the protocol. What we've seen since then is this trust, you know, saying that effectively now is not the time if you think about what's happened in Ukraine. And you're also starting to run into the Perda period in terms of the local elections in Northern Ireland. And I think triggering Article 16 would be seen as a political act, so potentially interfering in those, which is why you would have expected it to be in the coming weeks if you were going to do it. It feels as though the government has moved away from that, but that's not satisfied many on the right of the party who think that this is a, a workable. And one of the things that actually comes up is if you think about how Northern Ireland is being treated differently than the rest of the UK. So Labour at the moment talking about cutting VAT on energy bills and everyone's pushing for Boris Johnson and saying, well, this is a Brexit bonus, you should be doing this. Were the government to cut VAT on energy bills, they wouldn't actually be able to do that in Northern Ireland without being in breach of the protocol because according to the protocol, they would have to be in line with the Republic of Ireland and Brussels. So there are lots of things and I think there are other reasons they're not cutting VAT on energy bills such as the fact that Rishi Sunak does not think it is targeted. But it does point, I think, to how the protocol is limiting what the government could do if it wanted to. And James, finally, the British-Iranian Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe we heard this morning, has been handed her UK passport back. Could this mean that this whole horrific saga is close to coming to an end? Yeah, so this morning we had an Iranian journalist reporting that Britain has paid this debt that it owes to Iran that has been one of the kind of sticking points. When Tulip Sadiq, who is Nazanin Zarari Ratcliffe's MP, tweeted saying that she has been given her British passport back. Now, I think that, that given this situation and given the, that some of the Iranian regime's behaviour in previous circumstances, you know, I don't, I don't think people will feel a sense of relief until she's kind of, you know, out of Iranian airspace and, and on her way home. But this certainly looks, in terms of her return to the UK, the most promising it has in a, in a very long time. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening. And while we have you here, do check out the Coffee House Shots live event we've got coming up where we'll be digesting and analysing the spring statement. Clearly, Ukraine and Russia is going to have an impact on that. That's going to be on the 23rd of March, Wednesday. Tickets, details online, doors from 7pm, Emmanuel Centre. Um, we might sneak in some spectator gin, depending on the licensing laws of the venue. Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash spring. Mm-hmm.